0: You're listening to TIP.
1: And honestly, once we tell you that we approve this deal, we're going to do our best to make sure it closes. Whereas for the conventional side, there are many reasons why they can
2: just cancel on you last minute. And I have seen that happen. On today's episode, I chat with Sean Pan to talk about what hard money is, the approval process, its difference from traditional financing, its common fees and red flags to avoid in a potential lender and much more. Sean is a real estate investor and hard money lender based in the San Francisco Bay Area. He invests in single-family flips, out-of-state rental properties, and is the host of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show and one of the Bay Area's top real estate meetups. We've touched on hard money loans briefly in quite a few episodes in the past, but we hadn't done a true deep dive into them yet. So my goal with this episode was to provide you with a true masterclass on hard money loans and to provide a resource that you can refer back to anytime you have questions or want to learn more about hard money. Also, a quick reminder about the fee for the show. We do not run ads to promote the podcast. The show only grows if you guys share it and tell your friends. So the fee for the show is exactly that. For every episode you like, share it with one friend. You don't have to share it with a million people. I mean, that would be awesome. And I'd love it if you did. But you can pay the fee by sharing each episode you like or get value from with just one person. And I'm confident that that'll be every episode. So don't forget to pay the fee, guys. It really helps the show grow and allows me to bring on the best guests for you all. And it allows me to keep producing content that is completely free. All right. Now, without further delay, let's get into this masterclass on hard money loans with Sean Pan.
3: You're listening to Real Estate Investing by The Investor's Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey.
2: Hey everyone, welcome back to the Real Estate 101 podcast. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard, and with me today, I have Sean Pan. Welcome to the show, Sean. Hey, Robert, thank you so much for having me on your show. Give us a quick rundown on your background and your story.
1: So, I'm a real estate investor, hard money lender, and agent based in the Bay Area. I've been investing for about five years now. Before investing, I used to be an engineer. I used to work on satellites for defense contracting companies and eventually decided that. I didn't want to stay in this industry for the next 30 years of my life. I wanted to try something new, try different businesses. And I tried several different businesses, many of which didn't go through. And I found that real estate investing was probably the most consistent way for an average individual like myself to get into something to then become financially successful. So I started attending meetup groups. I started purchasing out-of-state rental properties. I eventually started flipping homes. And then because I created my own like, podcast, YouTube videos, and meetup groups, I now work as a hard money lender to help others and basically fulfill their dreams by giving them loans to help them flip their houses.
2: You were working in a career as an engineer that a lot of people consider the normal route of success. Did you face any adversity or criticism from friends, family, peers when you made that transition out of a career that a lot of people would consider the pinnacle of success to what you do today?
1: I think my family was really opposed to me leaving my full-time job as an engineer to pursue real estate. But luckily, I had some pretty decent success with some of my flip projects. And I was making some decent income from my passive rental properties. So leaving was ultimately like my decision. And I kind of made it like, understood that I knew what I was doing. So I could leave without feeling too bad. I was getting a lot of opposition, really, when I was starting real estate investing. They were saying, hey, why are you messing around with all this stuff? Just focus on the job, save your money, invest in stocks here and there. But why are you buying a property out of state? You've never been to this area before. That was where I got the real opposition. And then once I was able to prove that I was making some decent income, those investments, they kind of got off my back a little bit and trusted me to do whatever I wanted to do.
2: How did you deal with that mentally and just fight through that when you're getting all that criticism? What did you do personally to make sure that you could still be successful?
1: So this is kind of interesting, but I'm an only child. And when I was younger, my parents split up when I was really young. So I was pretty much independent since I was a little kid. And I realized that whenever I wanted to do something, I think the default answer that most parents would give you is no. So for example, I wanted to go to a trip to Yosemite with my friends. I just got my license. I was maybe 16, 17 years old. And I was going to go travel with my friends for a weekend over in Yosemite and camp out there. And of course, my parents said, no, like it's not safe. You need like a chaperone or something. And we don't trust you to drive that far away. But then I just did it. And I came back. I was healthy. And they said, oh, okay, I guess he's responsible. We can trust him. And so from then on, they never questioned my decision to go out. So it's very similar here. Like I realized for my parents, if I asked them, hey, can I invest out of state? They would probably say a lot of negative things. But then I realized like, okay, I understand the numbers. I made a good team. Let me just go out and do it. I'll try it. Worst case scenario, I'll lose some money. And so I did it. It was profitable. A few months after I had seen that I was getting consistent rent checks, I was able to go back to my parents and say, hey, look, this thing works. And then they're like, oh, that's amazing. Congratulations. I feel like parents in general, they don't want to confine you, right? Their parents, they love you. They just want to make sure you're safe. So as long as you can prove that you're capable, And that you come out okay, then they're gonna be very supportive going forward.
2: How old were you at that point when you made that decision and they were kind of questioning what you were doing?
1: I've been trying to do different businesses since I was like 22 or 23 years old. I worked as an intern at first at an engineering company. At the time, I was excited, but then I saw just how sad my coworkers were. And that's why I realized I needed to make that transition. That's kind of like the first time when I kind of flirted with the idea of leaving a full time engineering role to start my own business. And I think that was the main time when my parents were really like, no, just focus on your work, get paid, move up the ranks. But then, you know, that was in the back of my head. I got to leave this place. So two to three years, that was that whole transition of like, okay, finding something that I could be really good at and solidify my path and the timeline to actually leave. So it still took me maybe four to five more years since that point before I actually quit my job and then worked in the real estate field. How old were you when you decided to quit your job? Yeah, I actually left two years ago. So I was 29 years old when I officially quit my engineering job.
2: Awesome. I just left my full-time job actually on my 26th birthday. So five months ago from when we're recording this, it was literally on my 26th birthday was my last day. So I've been through a similar situation and experience pretty recently. Congratulations. Thank you. I want to spend a bit of this conversation talking about hard money we've had a lot of investors on the show. We've had a lot of agents on the show. We've had a couple of people talk about hard money, but not a ton. So I want to do kind of a masterclass on hard money, really talk about all of that. And then later in the conversation, we'll talk a little bit more about what you're doing personally, some of your deals and those types of things. But first, I want to talk about hard money. So let's start with terminology and the concept of hard money, and we'll dive into your projects later. What exactly is hard money? So hard money loans are loans that are based on a hard
1: asset. So instead of basing it on your personal credit, we're going to be basing it on the property itself. Um, that's the main gist of it. Because we don't base it on your credit, we base it on property. It's a bit of a higher risk loan. We don't really just sell these loans to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. We usually hold on to them or sell it to a group of investors. Interest rates for hard money loans are typically going to be in the maybe 8.5 to 9.5% range. And they're meant for short-term like flips. Honestly, like if you're buying a rental property with a hard money loan, or at least a bridge loan where it's short-term, it's high interest, it probably won't work very well because every year you have to refinance or something like that. But it's really a good way to get into a property because we close quickly and we're able to help you buy a property even when you normally wouldn't qualify for a loan.
2: I want to talk about that benefit of how you can qualify and how you can get approved. And we'll talk about more of the benefits in just a second, but one of the main benefits is what you just mentioned, and that's how you can qualify and how you can be approved for a hard money loan. So walk us through the process of being approved for a hard money loan and how it differs from traditional financing.
1: So normally with traditional financing,
2: there is this acronym,
1: DTI, stands for debt to income ratio. That thing determines how much lender will be able to give you for a loan. Your DTI ratio is basically how much debt you have to pay on a monthly basis. So to add up all of your recurring debt, like your minimum payments for student loans, your minimum card payments, or your minimum credit card payments, and of course your principal, interest, taxes, and insurance for every property that you have. Then they divide it by your income. So that's your income before taxes. And that debt to income ratio usually has to be around 43% or 50%. So as you can imagine, if you are trying to get a big loan, that debt number is going to be really high. And then it won't give you enough for the income and you just can't get loans. So, I mean, as a personal like story, when I was trying to flip my first property, I already had this house here in the South Bay. I already had some other rental properties. I was making a decent income as an engineer, but I still didn't have enough income to then buy another property to flip. So this property was in a great part of the Bay Area. It's in Sunnyvale. It was probably worth 950000 as is. Now I was able to get it for $865,000. I knew that if I flipped it, it would be worth $1.2 million. So there was a good deal right there. But because I wasn't able to get the loan, I normally wouldn't have been able to get this property. So that's why a hard money loan is able to go in there and help you buy that property. So how do you qualify? Instead of me asking for your W-2s, your tax returns, and going through everything and making sure you have this solid debt to income ratio. What we do is, one, we check your credit score because you want to make sure you're still a good borrower. Two, we do check your bank account because we want to make sure you're able to completely like successfully complete the project. And then three, of course, we've realized the property itself. So when we still do appraisals, we sometimes do something called a BPO, which stands for Broker's Price Opinion. So these people don't have to be like licensed appraisers, but they can go inside, take a look at the property, give us a valuation. And from there we can tell, okay, is this a good deal or not? And then basically from that point, it's just paperwork and it takes 10 to 14 days to close on the property once we're approved.
2: Other than just the approval process and the considerations during underwriting for a hard money loan, what are the other benefits to using hard money over traditional loans?
1: Well, like I mentioned, we close relatively quickly. We can close in ten to fourteen days. And honestly, once we tell you that we approve this deal, you know, we're going to do our best to make sure it closes. Whereas for the conventional side, there are many reasons why they can just cancel on you last minute. And I have seen that happen. Some of our clients, in fact, they're buying rental properties. And they're about to close, and then for whatever reason, the lender just doesn't perform. So then they come to people like us because we can close quickly, and we're pretty certain that we can close on time.
2: What types of situations are right for using hard money?
1: Probably the most common reason that people use hard money is if they're trying to buy a flip property. So they're trying to get into a property and be in and out within a six-month time frame. Uh, Mostly because hard money loans do cost a lot of money, and they do have like a one-year term. So after the one-year mark, you either have to pay off the loan. Refinance or sell the property.
2: What situations don't you want to use it? Rentals, what else? Is there anything else? You
1: can't use it for owner occupied properties. Generally speaking, if you're trying to get a bridge loan just to buy your next home, hard lender probably won't just give you the loan. And mostly has to do with your licensing. Like most licensing, you need like an NMLS license to lend to residential owner-occupied properties. But for ours, they're all business purpose uses. So you're doing this as a business to buy a property, fix it up, sell it.
2: So what are the requirements for you as a hard money lender if you're lending this money for a business purpose, not to residential? You mentioned an NMLS. Do you not have any requirements like that?
1: Yeah. So we have something called a CFL license. It's in the same realm where we're lending for properties, but we're not lending it for owner-occupied use.
2: We just spent some time talking about all the pros of hard money. So now I want to spend some time talking about the downsides. One of the biggest downsides that I've seen in hard money is the cost of hard money debt. You talked about it. You mentioned that it's expensive. You mentioned some of the interest rates. Talk to us about the common fees associated with hard money and why it can be an expensive option for financing.
1: Yeah, that's a fantastic question. So the most common terms that you're gonna hear are rates and points. So you, whenever you're shopping for a harmony loan, people always ask, oh, what are your rates and what are your points? So the rate is your interest rate. These calculations are pretty simple because they're all interest-only loans for the most part, which means that you're not paying like a principal portion on this balance. So let's say that your loan is for a million dollars and I quote you a rate at 8.5%. So if you're gonna ask me how much do you pay every month, I'm gonna tell you, well, it's not that hard. If your loan is for a million dollars, at 8.5%, that means that every year you're gonna be paying $85,000 in interest. And then your monthly payments is just that $85,000 divided by 12. So it's pretty easy calculation. The points, that's synonymous with an origination fee. So lenders typically charge between one and two points. And what that means, it's 1% or 2% of the loan amount at closing. So even though we're giving you a loan at for, let's say $1 million again, and if we charge you one point, that means that we're going to charge you one or ten thousand dollars in origination fees. Basically, what that means is, on day one, instead of giving you a million dollars, we'll give you nine hundred and ninety thousand dollars, but then claim you owe us a million dollars on the back end. Other fees include processing fees. So again, on the back end, we have a team. They're probably doing an appraisal, they're doing internal valuations, or they're just processing your stuff. Those fees are usually around fifteen hundred dollars just to do every loan. If you are getting a rehab loan, so the good thing about these hard money loans is there's often a rehab component to it if you need more leverage. But, but if you want to get a rehab loan, we do something called a feasibility study. And that's where we get your scope of work from your contractor. And we kind of break down line by line to make sure that everything makes sense. And we make sure that your contractor isn't writing numbers that are way too high or way too low. That study does cost another $650 as well. So these are some of the fees
2: that you can have when you are getting a hard money loan. Other than just the generally high costs of most hard money... What are the other downsides of using hard money?
1: Yeah, I think just the higher interest rate makes it a riskier tool to use. I mean, it's like a scalpel. If you use a scalpel the right way, you can save lives. If you use a scalpel the wrong way, you can take away lives. Hard money allows you to have a lot of leverage. It gives leverage to people who normally won't qualify. And what that means is, like in my previous example, if the deal didn't go through, my income probably couldn't service all the debt that I have. I wouldn't be able to pay for my home, I wouldn't be able to pay for rentals and pay for this extra property if it was just my income alone. In fact, for the most part, when I'm using a hard money loan, I'm losing money every month, but I'm okay with that because I know that when I sell the property, I'll make it all back and then some on the back end. But what if the market turns on you? If the market turns on you and you have too much leverage and you're not able to support the payments, then it can be very, very bad. Also, like if you end up in a position where you can't sell the property for whatever reason, you're delayed, you're just losing money every single month. And then you might have to refinance. Well, if you get to a point where you're past that 12-month mark and you're not able to refinance for a reason, then that's also a bad too, right? They could foreclose on you. So short-term debt is a risk. High interest rate is also a risk, but these are just factors you have to have in your calculation before you get into a project.
0: Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors.
3: Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing.
0: This is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show. Were you a flipper
2: before you became a hard money lender, or were you a hard money lender before you became a flipper?
1: I was a flipper before I became a hard money lender. So, in fact, the company that I work for now was my hard money lending company. And that's why I feel like I'm really good at this particular role. And I enjoy it so much. So, as an engineer, you know, I was working on things and I didn't relate to it. There was no synergy. I didn't feel great about like, selling this product. But as a hard money lender, I see it from the client's perspective. I know what it's like to be a borrower. I know what some of the struggles are for new borrowers. What are some of the things that they don't know about? So I'm able to talk to them about it and be like, hey, candidly, here's how things work. And now I understand it from the lending perspective too. So it's a lot of fun.
2: Warren Buffett says that being a businessman helps him be a better investor, and being an investor helps him be a better businessman. Do you feel the same way about being a flipper and a hard money lender? Are they kind of symbiotic and help each other out?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And actually, the really cool thing about my role now is I'm talking to investors every single day. I'm getting to hear about all the cool projects that they do. And of course, that's also building my own personal network. So in the future, if I have a deal in Los Angeles, I can actually ask one of my clients, hey, do you want this deal? And we could potentially work together in the future.
2: So when you say you're a hard money lender, I want to actually dive into this a little bit because you just said that you work for somebody as a hard money lender and that a little bit caught me off guard. It's not bad or good or bad either way. It's just I had misinterpreted it myself. So I'm wondering if the audience might as well. So I want to drill in a little bit. I was originally thinking that When you said you're a hard money lender, I thought you took your own money, say you had $100,000 in the bank, and you were lending that out as a hard money lender yourself. I didn't realize that it was for another company. So I want to talk about that a little bit. What does that look like? What exactly are you doing? What is the company like? How does this whole process work for your role? Absolutely. Yeah. So I left my full-time
1: role as an engineer two years ago. But then after about a few months of me trying to be a real estate investor, wholesaling deals and flipping deals. I had built up this podcast, this audience, this YouTube channel and the meetup group. And so the hard lending company that I use for my projects reached out to me and said, hey, you have this audience of real estate investors. Why not work with us and help them fund their deals? And so that was perfect for me because it was synergistic with what I was doing already. So my podcast, YouTube, meetup groups that I was doing for fun, now there's a purpose. So yeah, I do work for a company now. It's a salary plus commission based and it's honestly like a dream job because, again, all I do all day is talk to investors. So that's basically what I do full time.
2: That was one of the pieces that I was wondering. Is it salary based? Is it a commission? You mentioned it's salary plus commission. So is it commission based because you're essentially selling loans to investors? You get a commission on those quote unquote sales?
1: Yep, absolutely. But because it's like this kind of role, it's not like a full time W 2 where I have to sit in an office and work nine to five. And honestly, it's kind of like being a real estate agent where the more business you do, the more you get, um, except now there's a base as well.
2: Is there any issues? And I'm assuming the answer is no, given that you're doing it. But what are the considerations with being an agent and being a hard money lender? There's no conflicts there or any issues with that from a legal perspective?
1: Not really, because it's not like I'm an agent and doing their loan, first of all. right? They're completely separate. And also, I think right now I'm mostly focusing on the lending side anyway. So no issues. Could you be the hard money lender and the agent on the deal? I think so. I mean, because you think about it from like a regular perspective, I think there are some agents who are also their lender. So there's, there's no issue there, as far as I know.
2: We talked a bit before about the situations that are and aren't right for hard money, like flipping versus rentals. But how about the investors themselves? Which investors is hard money right for and which investors is hard money not right for? Is hard money good for newer investors or should it kind of be left alone until investors are a little bit more experienced? That's a great question.
1: Honestly, many of our investors who use hard money loans are first time investors. And the reason they use hard money in the first place is just because they can't get into a deal through commercial financing. So if you have this amazing deal and you can't get financing, then what do you do? Just not take the deal? Like, no, you use your hard money loan. And yeah, you risk it, but you get in there. There are also like really sophisticated investors who do millions of dollars of profit every single year. And they still use hard money loans because they want the leverage. They know that with a hard money loan, they can do three or five deals at the same time. Whereas if they were to do the conventional route, it would take them 30 plus days to get the deal in the first place. And they could only get one or two. So it limits their ability to scale and do more projects. So honestly, I'll say in terms of who it's not for, it's probably not for someone who has a hard time keeping up with the payments. There are some investors out there who call me and they want 100% financing. They want to wrap in the entire construction budget. They also want to wrap in all the interest payments, basically going in with no skin in the game. I say like those investors, it's probably not right for you. Like if the deal goes sour in any way, you're going to be in a lot of debt. And honestly, it's going to be a really really risky loan for us. There are also some investors who are like, oh, what's your minimum for down payment? I say, well, for new investors, probably 20%. You know, we'll give you an 80% loan on the purchase and 80% for the rehab budget. And they said, hey, I saved exactly 20%. Is that enough? And I said, not really, because we still want to see if you have six months of holding costs. We want to see if you have at least six months of reserves to pay for these interest payments. And we want to see if you have enough money for closing costs too. If you have no money left, what are you going to do if something goes over budget, right? You're going to be in a very bad situation.
2: With hard money, is there any flexibility? You mentioned interest rates before, the length of the term, down payment requirements. Is there any flexibility to that? Does it have to be a year? Does it have to be 8%? Does it have to be 20% down? Talk to us a little bit about the flexibility of hard money versus traditional financing.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. There's definitely a lot of flexibility in the hard money lending space. Because hard money loans are mostly like private loans, there's a lot of negotiation, especially on the bridge side. So Let's say you have a competing bid, like, oh, this other lender can give me this loan for half a percent cheaper. You don't have to automatically assume that they're the best ones to go with. Let's say you like working with this particular loan officer, but their terms are a little bit worse. You can totally go to this other loan officer and say, hey, I have a quote from another lender. Here's what they're able to give me. Can you match or beat it? And for the most part, if they want your business, they'll work something out with you. So that's also another reason why hard money lending is really cool because there's a lot of flexibility in the space. And we're able to basically win a lot of loans because we're able to be flexible and work with the borrower to like find out what's something that they really want
2: and work with their terms. I recently had three hard money loans. They weren't traditional hard money like you're mentioning here, but they're kind of a spin on it. And one of the things that I did was that mine were interest only, but there were no payments due until the loan was refinanced. So once the loan was refinanced, so I didn't have any monthly payments. And the reason I was using this, I don't flip properties, but I was actually doing a bur. And so I used it to acquire the property. And so during the BER process, I didn't have any monthly payments, but the interest was still accruing. And then when I go to refinance out of those properties, you have to make that payment of whatever the interest would have been. So you're not skipping out on the payments. It's just instead of paying it monthly, you pay it on the end. Is that something you guys do frequently with your hard money? I would say not frequently, but it's a
1: negotiating point. Like some people, they want to wrap in those payments into the loan. Honestly, again, I haven't done it yet for any of my clients. For the most part, they're okay with making those monthly payments and contributing to their construction budget. But I think for like super large projects where they're doing like large development and they want to preserve as much capital as they can, then that could be a negotiating point. But again, with everything that you ask for, it could mean that something else increases in price.
2: So yeah, I would say it's not a super common thing that people would do. When you say you're lending this money, whose money exactly are you lending? Do you work for just one guy who made a billion dollars selling his tech startup, and now he has a bunch of money and he hired you and a bunch of other people to just say, hey, go lend out my money. Or I've heard that there's companies that just raise money from investors that invest into this pool essentially, and then it's invested out or lent out and those investors get a return. What type of money are you lending out? So we're an established company. We're called Conventus Lending, nationwide
1: hard money lender. The CEO created this company about six years ago. He's from Wall Street and I think raised funds from his investor group. And that's like our operating capital. So that's how we originate the loans. And then once the loans are originated, we then take those loans and then sell them on the back end to large hedge funds that buy these kinds of products in bulk. So then we have, again,
2: we're an origination company. What we do is we go in there, we create loans, and then sell them off. One of my personal concerns with using hard money loans right now is that I'm not overly confident that i be able to refinance out of the hard money loan into a traditional loan or some sort of other long-term financing in six or 12 months when I needed to due to changes in the market. How are you currently thinking about this dynamic with real estate and capital markets where they are right now?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a good question too. And I think that's a risk that a lot of investors have to take. I mean, most of the people who use hard money loans aren't refinancing into conventional loans. Generally, it doesn't happen that way. Most people who get a hard money loan try to sell it. But they're also concerned about the same things. They don't know if the market's going to shift on them in the future. So that's why I think the more sophisticated investors, they're obviously one, like they're not buying properties on the market, they're buying properties off market, trying to find them at deep discounts. So at least they have that buffer there. And then two, they also don't like to over leverage. So generally speaking, the newer investors like to go to 90% of purchase and possibly 100% of rehab, but the more experienced ones sometimes go for 80% or even 70%. If you go lower in that leverage, you actually get a lower rate too. So They're like, we don't need that much leverage. We don't want to put ourselves in that much risk. So a combination of buying properties off market and getting lower leverage is what's going to help them, I guess, stay less
2: risky in their investments. As an investor yourself, are you personally worried about the market climate right now when it comes to using hard money? Or are you still happy to use it on your own deals?
1: Yeah. Happy to use it on my own deals if the deals make sense. What is scary right now, especially with this kind of like overheated market, there are a lot of new investors who are hyper enthusiastic and they believe that the market is going to continue to climb forever, but that's not going to be the case. And especially with new investors, they don't have that source of deal flow. They don't have agents they can talk to, wholesalers that give them super great discounts. And they are often looking on the market and overbidding. I see that as a lender. They're saying, Sean, I have this deal, it's on the market. I'm going to get it for 100K over asking and it's probably going to be worth like $400,000 above what I'm going to pay for it. And I look at the numbers and I'm like, I don't know, man. These comps don't seem that great, but they're super confident about it. Sometimes we have to tell our clients we can't do a deal because it doesn't appraise well. And to do it, to protect our side as a lender, we need them to put in more money for a down payment. Again, some investors are really excited and they're willing to do that. But I guess it's my opinion that if you're a new investor, you need to be very careful with these short term transactions. You never know what's going to happen in the next few months. And you don't want to be caught in a situation where you bought the top of the market and now have to sell at the bottom.
2: I would summarize that problem with just being emotional. And I think you see that in a lot of different types of investing. Anytime, really, that you bring emotion into money, it typically doesn't lead to good decisions. Do you think being a hard money lender and a flipper, does it help you be less emotional as a flipper because you know the hard money side? Are you able to think of it a lot more objectively and not get emotional and not get super excited about deals and just really keep an even keel about it?
1: Yeah. But also I say it's a little bit different for me right now, because before I thought I'd have to do everything myself. Like I'd have to buy the property myself, get to loan myself and project manage it all myself. But now that I've been working in the industry, my network has increased significantly. I now know people who, if I get a good deal, I can have them bring in the funds. I now know people who can project manage the deal. I don't have to worry as much as I did before. And I also know there's always opportunities out there. So I feel a lot better now. Basically, like for people who are brand new, they get really emotional because their deal source is so limited that when they get something that's off market, whether it's a good deal or not, they want to jump at it just because it's off market.
2: If someone listening is interested in hard money and they might want to give it a try, what are the most important things to look out for when getting a hard money loan? What are the major red flags to avoid in a potential hard money lender?
1: You want to make sure they are able to close. So getting references is pretty important. When I was doing my very first deal, like I mentioned, the Sunnyvale deal, we actually made $300,000 in profit on our very first deal, but it almost didn't go through because the Harmony Lending Company that I used almost didn't close on my project. And at the time I was also using a broker too. So not to knock on brokers, but the brokers aren't the direct lenders. So they're going to charge you maybe 1% above what the direct lender will charge you. And then since there's no direct communication with the actual hard money lending company, when things go sour, you, know, you have to talk to your broker and your broker has to talk to the lending company. And so there could be some miscommunication there or there's delays in communication. Basically this hard money lending company that the broker decided to put me through with, they asked title for something kind of weird, right? Are you familiar with what mechanics liens are? I am. Mechanics lien is if you do work and you don't pay a contractor, A contractor can slap a mechanics lien on the property, so you can't sell it without paying that mechanics lien off. This hardware lending company wanted the title company to guarantee that I, as the borrower, could not put on a future mechanics lien. The title company was like, we can guarantee that there's no current mechanics lien when you close from the previous owner, but we can't guarantee that me, the new borrower, won't put another one on there. There's a lot of like back and forth between the title company and the lending company. And almost made the deal not go through. That caused a lot of stress for me. Apparently, they managed to work it out a few weeks later. But there was a lot of stress for me. I was scared that this deal wouldn't go through and that my earnest money deposit would just be gone because we can't perform. So that's probably the most important part. Make sure your lender has a good reputation. Maybe you have a friend that's used them in the past, and that they can close for sure, and they don't just back out last minute at the closing table.
2: What was the solution
1: that they found? They escalated to the to the VP. Both parties, like they had the upper management kind of talking with each other and then they worked something out.
2: What did you learn from that experience that you've taken to future deals that you've had?
1: Honestly, like working with agents or working with lending companies that are really good at communication matters a lot because honestly, my broker kind of ghosted me when things were looking really bad and we were almost not going to be able to close. He stopped picking up my phone call. As a lender myself, I'm like, that's super unacceptable. Like, you need to be able to talk to your clients. And be communicative of what's going on in the situation, even if it's not good news. Just let them know, hey, here's the updates. Don't ghost me, right? I think that's super important.
2: Would you have been able to use a different hard money lender to get that deal closed if that one hadn't been able to perform?
1: Possibly. Possibly. At the time I didn't have I didn't know anybody, right? That's why I used a broker in the first place. And they charged me an extra point. So yeah, that's like a big struggle that I think a lot of new investors have. Like they don't have a good network. They don't know who to use for hard money loans and end up using someone that's cost a lot of money, and then they probably
2: can't perform. What are the most common misconceptions about hard money that you hear from investors that have never used hard money before, or maybe even experienced investors? What is the most common myth or misguided opinion about hard money? Yeah. The most common misconception is a little bit what I
1: mentioned before, is that hard money lenders want to give you 100% of the financing for the entire deal. There are so many new investors. Actually, there are a lot of teachers, gurus, and programs that tell you, hey, you can get into real estate investing with no money down. Now, that may be true if you're more creative, if you bring in a partner, but they're saying, oh, I can go to a hard money lender and just get 100% financing for my purchase, 100% financing for my construction. I can wrap in the monthly payments into the loan so I have no money out of pocket. There are actually some companies that do that, but they charge you a lot of money, possibly 12 to 15% for the rate, And then four to five points for the origin nation fee. It's a lot. And generally speaking, I don't know like how long they're going to be there for. No idea.
0: Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors.
3: Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guys trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash
0: host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months.
3: That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right. Back to the show.
2: I want to transition now to talk a bit about your personal investing. I know you're a long distance investor, and I love that because I am too. And I believe very strongly in long distance investing. Since you live in California, my guess is that that's the reason why you started investing long distance. But tell us a bit about why you decided to invest out of state. Sure. I guess I'll give you a quick
1: story. I live in the South Bay, in the heart of the Bay Area. When I bought this property here for my own personal use, the average cost for homes in this area was around $750,000. But a few weeks ago, the house down the street from me sold for $1.2 million. This place is for appreciation, but the same property that's now worth $1.2 million can only rent for around $3,000 to $4,000 a month. If you think about it in like the percentage rules, this is like the 0.3% rule. It's nowhere near the 1% rule that most investors want to see. Whereas I can take $100,000, buy a property over in Florida that now rents for $1,000 per month and hits the 1% rule. Because it hits the 1% rule, it pays for my principal, interest, taxes, and insurance. It pays for my property management. It pays for any miscellaneous maintenance or repairs. And I still get a cash flow at the end of the month. So that's basically why I started investing out of state. I'm able to get cash flow out of state and not so much here in the Bay Area. Also, like I've mentioned before, I can't get a loan for another $1.2 million home. I don't earn that much money from my salary job to be able to qualify. But to buy properties out of state for a $100,000 property, all I need to do is qualify for an $80,000 loan, which is much simpler. And so that's why I started investing out of state. I wanted the cash flow and it's easier to get into more properties this way.
2: One of the most common questions I get asked about long distance investing is, how do people find markets to invest in? If you're listening to this episode and you haven't already listened to episode 84 of the Real Estate 101 podcast with Neil Bawa, I highly, highly recommend you go back and listen to it. The episode was called Data-Driven Real Estate Investing with Neil Bawa. But Sean, tell us how you answer that question when you're asked about how to find markets to invest in. What are you doing to find those markets and what are you looking for exactly?
1: It's actually really funny that you mentioned Neil Bawa. So because Neil Bawa and I are both from the Bay Area, I know him pretty well. I've attended his meetups. I actually had him on my own podcast as well. And actually from that podcast, he did probably mention the exact same things about how he uses data to find different markets. So we do something very similar. I mean, at the end of the day, we want to buy in a place where the population increases, because if population increases, then supposedly occupancy increases, and if occupancy increases, then rent increases. So then you have a property that appreciates in value and has rent potential increases. And you don't want to be in a place where you have... Like a population exodus, because that means that less people are going there, there's less jobs, less money, and then you have less friends. So, you know, we look at the same metrics, you know, we go on citydata.com, so city-data.com. You know, we look on the, I think, Department of Numbers to look at the jobs reports and see which areas have an increase in jobs. Right now, those numbers are all messed up. Last year, there was like negative 12%, negative 30% because of COVID. Now it's plus 50%, plus 20% because of the resurrection from COVID. But normally, if you have a place that where jobs increase by over 2% per year, then you're in a pretty solid environment. If jobs increase, then you're going to have more time for people to go in there. And we have more population, again, more occupancy and whatnot. What have you found to be the hardest part about investing long distance? The hardest part is finding the team members for sure. You need to have people that you can trust the most important person is your property manager, because they're going to be with you for the long run. Your agents, yeah, they're important to help you find the deals, but agents can come and go. It's not that big a deal because you can find different sources of deal flow. Finding a good property manager who's going to be with you for over a decade, like that's hard.
2: So you need to do a lot of vetting to make sure you have the right guy before you pick them. So how are you doing that? Let's just say you're looking for a new market to invest in. Are you finding the city first and then analyzing that city and saying, okay, I'm going to invest here and then finding a property manager that works good there? Or are you making sure that there's a property manager there first before you decide that you want to invest in the city? We actually look at the markets first. Like, If the market
1: is really good, there's a good chance that there's probably at least one good property manager there. We hope so. right? I guess in the worst case, you can always create your own property management group there. But yeah, we look at the markets first, make sure that it's a great area to invest in, that fits our criteria. And then, actually, the next thing that we usually do is we go on bigger pockets, to be honest. Go on bigger pockets, talk about the city, ask if anyone has any referrals to any good agents or property managers. People are very responsive on bigger pockets and they will tell you, hey, like, go talk to this guy, go talk to this guy. And then, from our perspective, we do that. We call everyone on the list. We kind of suss out who we want to work with. There are some people who are just really bad with communicating. They don't want to talk to you because they're too busy. And then some are really nice and some are very active in showing you good deals. And of course, once you have a good member on your team, you can ask them for referrals. Be like, hey, who do you recommend as a property manager? And you know, from there, you can then build out your other team. You can then build out your contractors, inspectors,
2: and all that stuff. When you are looking for that property manager, what is your process? What are you doing to find one that's actually good? Honestly, it's doing a lot of
1: phone calls. And just asking the typical questions you would ask any property manager. Be like, well, how many properties do you have under management? I guess, where are your fees at? Honestly, it's just talking to them and making sure that you guys are a good fit. I think for anyone that actually does the exercise and calls them, you'll know right away whether someone's a good fit or not. There are some property manager companies that only have their assistants talking to you and their assistants aren't really knowledgeable about anything. And they're like, oh, I have to get back to you. I have to get back to you. And it's hard to communicate with them. Whereas some other property managers are really good and they just spend hours on the phone with you. So I prefer that one because I like over-communication, over-under-communication. You can also ask like, what are your processes like? Are you gonna mail me a check? Is it gonna be direct deposit? All of these things matter.
2: Yeah, it's funny. I give a similar response. People ask me, what do I need to ask somebody? Give me a checklist of questions to ask an agent or a property manager for long distance. And I can do that. I can give them questions to ask. And those are important. A lot of times you want those answers. But the biggest piece, at least for me, oftentimes is how do you feel about that conversation? And that's not something that I could like tell you. Like, you know, I can't say. This is how you should feel about it. It's just like, how did you feel to talking to this person? Did they seem like they knew what they were talking about? Did they seem ethical? Did you like having a conversation with them? Are they somebody that you think you'd want to work with? You know, these types of things. You just there's no number or quantitative thing that you can put behind it. You just have to see how you feel. And it's hard because feeling is so subjective and your gut could be wrong, whereas numbers rarely lie, at least if you ask the right questions. And so I, I think that's the hardest part, is just really Knowing whether you could trust somebody and going off your gut feeling.
1: Yeah. I mean, what if someone gave you like the perfect answer, but they just sound super monotone, robotic, and they seem unenthusiastic with working with you? That's probably not somebody I want to work with anyway.
2: Exactly. That's a great point. And it's also, you know, actions speak louder than words, right? I mean, like you said, somebody could give the perfect answer, but if they never answer their phone, like if you're calling them, let's just say you ask somebody 10 questions, they answer all 10 perfectly right, they seem brilliant. But you have to call them 10 times to just get them on the phone once. It's like, is that really this person you want to work with? Exactly. What has been the hardest part about long distance investing for you?
1: Here's the thing, like long distance investing isn't that hard once you get into it. So I guess the hardest part is starting in the first place. Because like before you buy your very first out-of-state rental property, it's super scary. There's so many unknowns out there. You don't know who you can really trust you don't know the market really well. You hear of all these crazy things like, oh my God, in Alabama, there are some crazy tornadoes. Oh my God, in Florida, you have crazy hurricanes. Well, in California, we have earthquakes too, but really think about it because we live here. So I think that's probably the hardest part is just getting started. And then of course, finding your team because that's what takes a lot of work. In fact, right now, my girlfriend and I are under contract for a flip opportunity in Texas. We have some projects over there, like some long-term rentals, but we actually want to flip this one. And we're thinking of possibly going there and being the GCs ourselves, because we want to get that experience of flipping more houses. right? But we're basically creating a whole team from scratch because we're not from that area. So thinking of, okay, who are we going to call for? An electrician, a plumber, a painter, that's a lot of work. And then I have to make those phone calls. So that's probably another difficult thing is setting up that team once you decide on the place you want to invest in. Do you typically go to the location and see all the properties that you're buying long distance? Definitely not. So I invest in Jacksonville, right? And I've gone to Jacksonville one time in my life, even though I have several properties there. I went there one time just to meet the team and see the properties I have. But I'm not an inspector. I'm not a contractor. So me physically going there and looking at a wall doesn't really do much for me. I could look at the report and then, okay, that's good enough. I know what I'm getting myself into. I send this inspector report to the property management company so they know what kind of repairs needs to be done. I look at the invoices, I pay it and it's all good. So yeah, I rarely go to the cities that I invest in. I mean, unless there's something fun there, but
2: usually not. It's funny. I kind of feel like I'm talking to myself in this because it's literally almost the exact response that I would say. And I talk about that all the time. I've never been to the cities that I invest in. And there's no real point in me going there because I don't know what I'm looking at anyway. My background's in finance, accounting. I don't know anything about construction. So there's no point in me being there for the inspection or the walkthrough or anything like that because I don't know what I'm looking at anyway. And so I'm always going to rely on a professional who knows what they're looking at. I hire them. They tell me their professional opinion, and that's what I'll do. Just like you said, I'll read the reports and I'll make a decision based on that. And that's exactly what I would do, whether I was there or I was at home. So for me, it's the exact same thing. Yeah. So normally we do the same thing. I think for this particular property in
1: Texas, we're going to fly out there because it's also going to be a cool experience, right? We're going to be there working with the GCs as they, you know, remodel this entire place. And it makes for great content too. So my girlfriend and I both have YouTube channels, and it's obviously very nice to have that visual of like before. It looks
2: terrible after it's great. What do you wish you had known about long distance investing before you got started? Honestly, I don't have too many like, regrets about my long distance
1: investing. Whatever I learned, I learned. And I don't think I've made any like, real solid mistakes yet that I wish, like, oh man, I wish I'd done this back in the past. But I will tell you, for flipping houses, I've made some serious mistakes on that point. One thing that I would go back in time and tell myself is you can over leverage on one project. You can go 80, 90% on one project. But if you're new, don't hit four or five projects at the exact same time because that opens you up to too much market risk. If one project goes down, usually most people can withstand that blow. But what happens when four or five projects go down at the same time? It's very painful and it hurts a lot. So yeah, if I go back in time, I'll tell myself that, hey, hard money loans are there for you to leverage, but you're also able to leverage on multiple properties at the same time. Don't do that unless you're super experienced, you have a good crew in place, and you have a lot of finances to back you up in case all the projects go sour at the same time.
2: What do the return numbers look like on your long distance investing properties? You can share as much or as little details as you'd like, but I'm curious to hear, and I'm sure the audience would love to learn, what are the returns that you can earn from long-distance investing, specifically cash on cash and maybe cash flow? Yeah. So we typically try to target a 10% cash on cash return on our
1: properties. The way that I calculate is all the cash that I put into a deal, like down payment, closing costs, minor repairs up front, we're getting around 10% in net income. So that's after paying for your property manager, after paying for your property insurance, taxes, and mortgage. And also after taking into account that you're gonna have some vacancies and taking into account that you're gonna have some repairs down the line, whatever's left over, that number on a yearly basis should be 10% of what I put into the project. I don't have an exact example to give you right now with numbers, because honestly, we have so many different projects that the numbers is very wildly, but in general, we want to get 10% after taking into account the fact that every month your mortgage is getting paid down. So you have debt paid down and the fact that your property appreciates over time, that total return ends up being around 20% every single year. So it's actually pretty nice. But I guess that's kind of the metric we go for. Usually speaking, we get around 200 to $300 in cash flow every single month per property or per unit? I think that's
2: kind of like a minimum for there. Are you buying single family, small multifamily, larger multifamily, what types of properties are you buying in Jacksonville or even other markets that you invest in? Yeah, so we're in several different markets now and we're in the 1 to 4
1: unit space. We are trying to go into the higher like commercial building space, but we found that everyone wants to get into multifamily right now. I think it's like the thing. Everyone's like, "Oh my god, multifamily is so resistant to all the downturns. Even during COVID, it did really well." Yeah. So cap rates on the multifamily space are extremely compressed. In fact, we can get more units by buying single-family properties than we can by buying a large multifamily asset, which doesn't really make sense because multifamily properties in general are more risky than single-family assets, yet we're able to buy single-family cheaper. So we're staying that route until things change.
2: I love listening to podcasts, reading books, articles, and all kinds of things like that. But I've learned over the last few years that it's more important to take action on those things than it is to consume more of those things. So before someone listening to this episode continues on to the next episode in their podcast player, what is one action step that they should take after listening to this show?
1: Great question. I always tell people to join meetup groups. So meetup groups are a form of action, even though you're not actually investing. But the thing is, you're becoming more intimate with the crowd. Get this sense of community, and they're also going to hold you accountable if you say, I claim that I'm going to get a deal in the next six months. Six months later, they're going to look at you and say, did you get the deal yet? They're also going to be able to help you with all these miscellaneous questions. Like here on this podcast, you're asking me questions and I'm answering them, but what if a listener is out there and they have a specific question, and I didn't mention it on the podcast, who are they going to go to? They can't just listen to another podcast because I might say the same thing, but they can go to a meetup group and then potentially meet another hard money lender there and ask them something that they don't know. So I say go to meetup groups. It'll definitely help you out in the long run. And yeah, I think just go from there.
2: Before we wrap up the show, I want to give you a chance to tell the audience where they can go to connect with you. So Robert, first of all, thank you so
1: much for having me on the show today. If any of you guys want to reach out to me about hard money loans, you can reach out to me on Instagram at I'm I M underscore Sean Pan. That's S-E-A-N-P-A-N. You can also reach me by email at Sean S E A N at I also have a YouTube channel, Sean Pan REI, and my podcast, which is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. So similar to your show, I've had over 230 different people come on the show and give great advice. So if anyone wants to learn more about real estate investing, particularly if you're based in the Bay Area and you want to learn how other Bay Area investors invest, check out the show as well.
2: Awesome. I'll be sure to put a link to all those different resources in the show notes for anybody that's interested in checking them out. Sean, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Robert. Appreciate it. All right, guys, that's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week.
3: Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investor's Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.